Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwarztropper. On today's show, Uber, because we don't talk about it enough, <laughs> joining me to discuss it is our uh, longtime Uber guest, Jared Meyer, research fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Jared, thanks for joining the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Evan. So, Jared, that book that we've mentioned on the show like five times, but that hadn't actually come out yet, is now out, and it's called Uber Positive, Why Americans Love the Sharing Economy. And uh, I got to tell you, if other books were as short as yours, I might actually read more. Well, exactly. Yeah, it's it's only 40 pages long, so I had to fit in all the reasons why Americans love Uber, and then also hint at all the reasons why Democrats now apparently hate Uber, all in just 40 pages, just so that you would read it. <laughs> well, uh, I, I I can say that I am, I've made some good progress. <laughs> I can't promise that I've read every word, but certainly enough for today's discussion. Uh, before we get into the book, which chronicles Uber's battle with Mayor Bill de Blasio in New York City, we've talked about it a little bit on the show. Some uh, prominent folks in the Democratic Party, including Hillary Clinton and Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, have recently made some comments about Uber. And tech policy, as I've lamented on the show before, has really not been prominent in this election uh, with what's going on with Donald Trump and just the, the issues that people seem to care about, like the rise of ISIS and other uh, pressing wall. issues. Yeah, building walls, right, of, of course. Um, tech policy is just not really getting the prominence that it deserves. But recently, um, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who many see as a similar standard bearer for progressivism the way that Bernie Sanders is, made some comments about Uber. So, Jared, what did she say? And do you think she's wrong? Well, she had a lot to say. She gave a whole speech at the New America Foundation just on the sharing economy and the, as she would put it, the challenges it poses, yet the promise it has as well. So she would say things about how Uber and Lyft are breaking down barriers and really showing the inefficiencies in existing markets, especially taxi markets. But then in the next sentence, she would say things like, and here's a quote just because it's so ridiculous. For many, the gig economy is simply the next step in a losing effort to build some economic security in a world where all the benefits are floating to the top 10%. So she has Uber and Lyft now is one of her capitalist you know, whipping boys when she's talking about income inequality. And she blames Silicon Valley and the sharing economy as a whole for exacerbating increasing income inequality. And of course, the natural follow-up question would be, so if these people were not driving for Uber, not renting for Airbnb, not doing TaskRabbit, not doing Instacart, if these are the ways that they've decided to make supplemental income or full-time income, whatever works for them, what else would they be doing? Does she have an alternative? I mean, she's complaining that they're, quote, stuck in this paradigm, but what's the alternative? Oh, she has her alternative down, all right. It's working in a nine-to-five union job where you're manufacturing. That's a preferably green energy too. That would be her dream job for all of these people. And if you read her speech, what it really comes down to is she wants people who work in the sharing economy who are right now classified as independent contractors so they can work whenever they want to be moved into an employee employer role. So what that would do to the sharing economy is, first of all, take away the flexibility, but also make it so that they could unionize. So that's really her end game in this. Whenever she's attacking the sharing economy or talking about its regulatory challenges or any of this, all she cares about is them being able to unionize so that they can shore up declining union membership. And that kind of defeats the purpose of the entire system. And first, to be fair to companies like Uber and Lyft, I'm pretty sure they've never advertised themselves as a 
substitute for a full-time job with benefits. They've never said that this, you know, go quit your job that pays $70,000 a year and come drive for Uber because you can make the same amount of money. They don't say things like that. They don't advertise as a full-time career. And if some people decide to drive 50 hours a week and that's their full-time job, great. But the vast majority don't. The vast majority are part-time. And the problem with saying things like every worker needs this or every worker is guaranteed this, you're trapping them into that. So if you were to unionize Uber drivers, now if I want job security and economic security, I have to drive for Uber. I have to stay with Uber. Whereas when she's worrying about economic security, maybe the economic security is the fact that I can drive for Uber at night and apply for jobs during the day and do interviews. Maybe that's my economic security. Maybe that's my job security. It doesn't fit her definition of security. Yeah. And I think she's confused on a lot of this. First of all, the basic numbers. If you look at Uber drivers, over half drive under 10 hours a week. And for Lyft drivers, 80% drive under 15 hours a week. So this is part-time flexible work for the vast majority of drivers. But let's just say that for some reason, the Congress decides to update federal antitrust law to allow independent contractors to unionize. Well, whose interest would win out with collective bargaining. What about the people who are driving 40, 50 hours a week? Would their votes count for trying to figure out who should be in a class of drivers? And then would these part-time workers have to abide by the rules that just half of whatever class they decide on voted for? So again, unionization is going to take away one of the cornerstones that makes the sharing economy so effective and made it able to grow so quickly, which is the increased flexibility to come in and out of work depending on what you need. And uh, you brought up an important point that we've talked about, especially Barron talks about all the time, which is that a lot of um, progressives, those on the left and the digital left, they're not necessarily anti-sharing economy. That would be too harsh. You know, there, there's a spectrum. So you've got Robert Reich, um, former labor secretary to Bill Clinton, left-wing gadfly. He's pretty much as close as to anti-sharing economy as you're going to get. He calls it the share the scraps economy. He echoed the uh, Elizabeth Warren sentiment about how the reasons that people do these things is because they're resorting to that, that they have no better options. It's kind of a paternalistic argument like, oh, these poor Uber drivers, if only they knew how bad this is for them. And if only they were given the nice 40 hour unionized, 40 hour week unionized job that allows people to have dignity because it's the old master servant employee employer relationship. But Warren struck a different tone saying, oh, of course, you know, breaking down barriers, recognizing that low income neighborhoods in New York City are better served by Uber than taxis. But it's all about management. And it's about pulling policy levers. It's technocracy. It's saying, of course, I'm for the future. Of course, I believe in technology. But And then here comes all the conditions and the regulations that are going to make that technology work for us. Um, So do you see where do you see Hillary Clinton? So if if we have Elizabeth Warren, who's like pro future, but technocratic, wants to manage and regulate Uber. You've got Robert Reich, who's just basically a Luddite and hates technology. Where does where does Hillary Clinton fall on this spectrum of Democrats? I think Hillary Clinton would be even more in support of the sharing economy than Elizabeth Warren is. And she's definitely not on Reich level. I mean, Reich is psychotic when you (laughs) listen to what he actually says on the sharing economy. He talks about how Uber drivers are losing money and they're making below minimum wage. Then in like a blog post, two things later, I read all of Robert Reich's work on the sharing economy. If you want a good laugh, I recommend doing it. He's like, yeah, it doesn't matter that they make $25 an hour, which I don't 
think they even make that much on average, but he admits this, but then says the problem with it is that then they're taking away jobs from taxi drivers. Like he is a Luddite on this. So it doesn't matter. He doesn't care about the workers and what's working for Uber. He's just trying to save every job. And he's worried that the fact that Uber is succeeding means that some taxi drivers will lose their jobs and every job is worth the government tr- coming in and trying to save it. Yeah. And he's he's bringing up that these drivers have no security. For example, he says if there's another economic downturn, the drivers are going to have nowhere to go and they won't have the safety net to fall back on. And if you look at what Elizabeth Warren said in her speech, she said right now, you know, they don't people who are independent contractors like Uber and Lyft drivers, they don't have access to even uh, social Social security. I'm like, no, that's not true. They're supposed to pay in their employer's contribution and they pay in their contribution too. They have full access to social security. And she said they have no access to portable retirement benefits. I guess none of her staffers who wrote the speech ever told her that since the late 1970s, we've had IRAs in the US where you can contribute, you know, tax-free money into your own retirement account. So there's all this kind of idea that if an employer isn't providing something, people can't have it, even when we have their dream of a government providing something like an IRA. But if you look at going back to where Hillary Clinton is, I would say she's more pro-sharing economy than Elizabeth Warren. And the reason I'd say this is Hillary Clinton, in my view, is the undisputed queen of the sharing economy. And what do you mean by that? Well, if you look over all of Hillary's tax returns and bills since they left the White House, about 99% of their income has come from 1099 income. So if you look at their wage income, uh, things, you know, excluding real estate investment or stock returns, all their income is coming from 1099 work. Things like, uh, you know, the speeches that she's given. Uh, going and writing books, book promotion, <laughs> consulting, all of these things. And when uh, Hillary was asked, talking about her speeches, you know, why she gave them to Goldman Sachs, why she was going around talking to these investment banks, she said a lot of people go into full-time work for one company after they leave public service. Well, she said she thought it'd be a better way, you know, to have more flexibility and really fit her better if she went and instead worked for herself and worked with different clients. Well, yeah, that's great for you, but how about allowing that same opportunity to go to the rest of Americans who want to participate in the sharing economy? Hey, if you want to buy influence with Hillary Clinton, just uh, give money to the Clinton Foundation, right? That's what uh, dictators do. Um, but so, so I really find this this divide on the left fascinating because you, if you look at who's working in a lot of these companies, it's a lot of Democrats. Um, David Plouf is one of the senior, or if not the the chief public policy lobbyist type person at Uber. He was Obama's chief of staff, heavily involved with President Obama. There are other public policy folks at Uber that used to be on the Obama campaign. And then you look at the demographics. Millennials love to use Uber, but millennials are also love or millennials also love Bernie Sanders, who has criticized Uber because similar to Robert Reich, every job is worth saving and disruption. Yeah, is he's bad. definitely on the right side of the state. Right. Yeah. So it's yeah. just it seems like a massive contradiction. And Hillary might just be trying to toe a line where maybe she is very much in line with Republicans on Uber. Republicans are not really an interesting case on Uber because they all seem pretty supportive. Um, Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio did little media stunts where they ordered an Uber, you know, very cute, nice campaign stuff. Didn't work out for them. Um, but it's just, yeah, setting aside Donald Trump because he hasn't really said anything about tech policy other than complaining that the Washington Post was bought by Amazon because it criticizes him. Um, they're just not as interesting. But this this divide on the left is fascinating. And uh, 
What is your prediction for where Hillary Clinton will fall down on this issue if she is forced to say something definitive? Well, what she'll talk about is keep saying that, oh, yeah, you know, it's breaking down regulatory barriers. Uh, We need to level the playing field, which is something Elizabeth Warren said in her speech. But of course, what she means by leveling the playing field is the example of Austin on ride sharing, adding antiquated taxi regulations to new technology. But oftentimes people on the left and the right forget that there's two ways to level the playing field. You can reduce existing barriers that really serve no purpose and are, you know, on incumbent industries. It's stopping them from competing. And that's a much better way than applying the old regulations to new technology. But what it's going to come to with uh, the worker classification question, I think she's going to stay strong on this because unions are a very powerful interest on the left. They still have a stronghold on the Democratic Party, even though if you look back to kind of the first Clinton years with the new Democrats, where they were trying to promote economic growth, then, you know, we can figure out what to do with the proceeds that we get and we can have a uh, you know, more friendly society, but we want economic growth first and foremost. I would, I would have expected that unions would have lost their political influence as they've lost their membership. I mean, memberships at pretty much an all time low, but unfortunately they still have a strong hold and that's going to really hold back any of these, uh, Democratic politicians, you know, such as Cory Booker, who are pretty strong in the sharing economy, they're going to be then stepping back and kind of thinking twice and making sure their statements don't go against union interest. Well, that brings us to your book, because your book talked about the whole saga with uh, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. We don't necessarily have to relitigate what happened. There was a proposed cap on the growth of Uber over traffic congestion. Uber fought it, yada, yada, yada. Uber ended up winning, basically. Um, but it, it brings up an interesting question about leveling the playing field. And it's really easy to say, don't regulate Uber um, or don't regulate it the same way as taxis or don't put overly burdensome regulations on the sharing economy. But then you got to ask yourself, is it fair to taxi drivers if they were sold a false bill of goods? Let's say that bill of goods is a government granted monopoly. You are going to be shielded from competition. The number of yellow cabs in Manhattan will be capped. There's not going to be a lot of growth. You've got some security here. And then just because Uber is classified as a prearranged ride rather than a hail ride, they're not subject to the same regulatory regime. Taxi drivers income is threatened. Medallion owners investment is threatened. Is that partly government's fault? And is there an argument to be made for a bailout or at least some type of mitigation? And what specifically would you recommend to help taxis compete with Uber rather than just saying Uber shouldn't be regulated the same way? One thing I'll say is that uh, pro taxi lobbyists, I don't, I don't know what group they're called. Uh, oh, who's driving you is one of them. The Taxi Limousine yeah. Commission. Yeah. Yeah. But what they argue is that, you know, you've got an immigrant entrepreneur who saved up for years to buy a taxi medallion and now his lifestyle and his family's threatened and he might have to get kicked out of his house because of the rise of Uber. That's not the case. I mean, if that is ever true, it's the very rare exception. I chronicle the story of Gene Friedman, who was known as the taxi king of New York in the book, and he had over 1,000 New York medallions. And the reason that these medallions shot up so much in value, up to $1.3 million a medallion at one point in 2013, was because he would go to an auction and just outbid everyone by, let's say, $200,000. Just throw more money down because he owned so many medallions, it would make him look 
look wealthier on paper. Yeah, he was trying to create a or corner the market kind of in a way. Yeah. And also to make it, he used highly leveraged financing to buy all these loans or buy all these uh, medallions. So the more that they were worth on paper, the more he would get in loans. So it's kind of, it's not exactly the same as the housing bubble, but using highly leveraged financing, I mean, it can go great when times are good, but if something goes wrong or an Uber comes to town, that whole model comes crashing down. So I really don't think we need a bailout to get them back to the level that they were artificially at in 2013. I mean, taxi medallions in New York, Chicago, uh, Philadelphia, they outpace the returns you could have gotten on any asset class. Like it was a great investment. And with any investment comes risk. So I do not think we should bail out someone, especially when these taxis still have their technical monopolies on street hails. Yeah, that's an important point because um, the story about the immigrant taxi driver losing the value of his medallion, it's very compelling. But the medallions are anywhere, you know, based on how they've fallen. You know, maybe they were at a million dollars, a little bit over a million dollars. Now they're down to seven hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars. It depends on the city, and in New York City, that tends to be the case. But the drivers probably have more flexibility in leaving that industry than medallion owners. So the driver often leases the taxi. They don't own the taxi. They don't own the medallion. They pay a certain amount of the money they make in a day to the medallion owner, who is usually owns more than one medallion. It might be a hedge fund. So before we get all caught up in the sob story of the taxi industry going to hell, the real losers are not necessarily the drivers. I mean, sure, the driver might stop driving a taxi because he finds it's a losing proposition, but he doesn't have this in most cases, doesn't have this million dollar thing, you know, dropping in value. And of course, you you bring up that this guy was taking advantage of a monopoly to make money. And of course, now it's come crashing down. That that kind of thing happens. But apart from a bailout, let's say we want to make it easier for taxis to compete with Uber based on the assumption, which I think is correct, that there is still a market for people to walk outside of an office, put up their hand and get a car. It's easier than getting an Uber, right? There's that waiting for an Uber takes five minutes, Maybe getting a taxi is instant. There's a market there. How can we make it easier for Uber to compete? Are there specific antiquated regulations on the taxi industry in New York or other cities that could be removed that could level the playing field in the way that you prefer, which is a deregulation rather than an, a new regulation? I think one thing we need to look long and hard at is the how the government sets fair prices for taxis. I mean, I can understand the argument that we want one uh, uniform fare when you're just getting into a cab where you really don't know who's driving you, unlike Uber, where you can see who's coming and how much it's going to cost beforehand. But one thing we could do is institute what some cities have and actually make it stronger on like rain surge charging for taxis or during a snowstorm that it costs more. Because right now there's just no incentive for for taxi drivers to be out on the road, let's say at bar close. I know Austin, which is another city that has publicly available taxi data, the number of cabs on the road fall real, uh, very sharply around midnight. That's when people are trying to get home from the bars. And I mean, Austin has the most bars per person and it's downtown. You need more transportation options than the 800 or so that are capped by a medallion system in Austin. So you see that 
One thing is on the uh, fares that they're allowed to charge. Secondly, I would say we really need to get rid of medallion systems. And if you don't fully get rid of them, drastically expand the number of cars. Everyone knows the lack of competition and the lack of customer service that comes with a government granted monopolies. What led to the rise of ride sharing in the first place? So I would say we need to look at the number of cars on the road and also what they're allowed to charge. Just bring in more competition. And I should say also in D.C., there's no set uh, cap on the number of cars, but there's a cap on the number of companies. So they don't let any new companies come in, but the companies that exist can add new cars. So that's another way we need to open up these markets to new entrants so that they can compete. Yeah. And anecdotally, um, I was traveling in Europe and I noticed or I, I talked to someone in Amsterdam and she was talking about how the taxi drivers really got screwed because Uber came around um, and it was it was great and people loved it. But taxi drivers still have to, every two years, paying thousands of euros to take a test to prove that they still know the geography of the city. They've got to re-register. There's all these things that make it really expensive. And that might be why your fare is so expensive, because in some places, the taxi driver can set the fare or the companies can set the fares, but it has to recoup all of these costs. And I think we can all agree that in a world where GPS is ubiquitous and your Uber driver doesn't have to take a test to learn every single street in D.C. They can use the GPS. Why should every London cab driver have to do that? Why should every D.C. cab driver have to do that? Every Amsterdam cab driver have to do that? It's outdated. There's no Sure, it's nice to have a driver who knows where they're going without a GPS. That's fun. But is that worth charging them thousands of dollars every X number of years to, re, to remind people that they still know how the city works? That might be why your cab is expensive. That might be why your industry is not innovative. And there's just... A, a slew of examples where government can cut some red tape, level the playing field in the way that gives taxis more flexibility, not trying to put Uber into the old paradigm. Um, so your book is out. Uh, can people get it on Amazon? Yeah, yeah. Amazon. So we'll link to that in the show notes. It's uh, got a bright red cover. It's called Uber Positive, Why Americans Love the Sharing Economy. It's nice. It's got thick paper. Uh, You know, I was just reading it before the show because, you know, I love to do things at the last minute. (laughs) But uh, my guest has been Jared Meyer, research fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Jared, thanks for always joining the show. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Evan. Uh, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, let us know what you think of the show. Send us an email at mediatechfreedom.org. We'd love to hear your feedback, ideas for topics, guests you'd like to see. Uh, we've heard a little bit of feedback from listeners that uh, five episodes a week is a, is a bit unwieldy to keep up with the show. So we thinking of scaling it back a little bit, but love to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, find this podcast in the iTunes store. Uh, please leave us a review. It will help others find the show. Thank you for listening. Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.